G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. Two reports this week. The first takes us up to Queensland, where across the state, local councils began negotiating enterprise bargaining agreements at the end of last year, but Redlands City Council had staff taking unprecedented industrial action after some of the workers were expected to take a $15,000 a year cut. We then take you to the We Feed You, the Migrant Farm Workers Fighting Exploitation session at the ALP Fringe, running alongside the main Australian Labor Party conference held in Adelaide at the end of last year. Run by the National Union of Workers, we hear how the visa system is being used to divide workers, while visa workers, immigrants and workers without visas are being exploited to bring fresh food to our tables. Not all doom and gloom. The solutions were also put forward at the session. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. While members of the services union at Baloney Shire Council in Queensland have reason to celebrate because of the certification of their new agreement at the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission just before Christmas, giving employees a 2.25% salary increase in 2019 and 2020, improved camp allowance, employment security, positive employment relations and trade union training leave, Redland City Council's Environment and Regulation Group stand to lose up to $15,000 per year. Stick Together's Craig Garrett spoke to the services union lead organiser Ben Jones about industrial action taken before Christmas as the union members intend to push for a change of heart from council in the new year. There are approximately 16 of our members who are affected by this potential uh, cut to their conditions. So that's obviously a a small proportion of Redland City Council's workforce. But pleasingly, 93% of our members across all areas of council, from the libraries through to the construction supervisors, through to technical officers and straight-out admin people, 93% of them voted in support of industrial action. I have background. For several years, starting with probably the midpoint of the previous LNP state government, up until about mid last year, we couldn't really officially bargain at any council. So what you've had is a situation where most of the agreements across the state, and bear in mind that there's 77 local authorities across Queensland, and, and we've got union agreements at most of them, have all come due for bargaining all at the same time. So the minute the chequered flag went down last year when the legislation and the award overhauls had finished, there were stacks of councils and our members were rightly saying, well, you know, let's renew these agreements, lock up some pay rises, renew the conditions where we need and keep it moving like that. The majority of those councils have generally played a reasonably straight bat 
with negotiations and the industry benchmark that we've achieved and, and settled on at those councils is a pay increase to the tune of about 2.5% per year, give or take, with a little bit more upfront if we weren't able to obtain a, an administrative increase in the interim in those years that we couldn't bargain. Fortunately, Redlands, to their credit, wasn't one of those councils. We were quite easily able to get them to, to pay staff interim increases over that non-bargaining period. And we've generally achieved a couple of industry-wide reforms such as domestic and family violence leave and support measures and also um, natural disaster and severe weather leave. And we haven't had to trade off any conditions, but unfortunately there's been a handful of councils who've tried to use this sudden ability to bargain and the hope that our members will just sort of snap at anything that's put put in front of them as an opportunity to try and uh, recalibrate and downwardly adjust conditions that our members have fought for and and maintained and and often had to trade away higher pay increases to get. And unfortunately, it looks like Redland is is falling into the latter category. What's happening or what's happened with the negotiations at Redland City Council? We've been negotiating for a few months now and unfortunately we've come to a bit of an impasse. There were a number of issues where we had some fairly robust conversations with management where management were keen to try and reduce conditions or get us to or get our members to, to trade conditions off in exchange for a pay rise that's you know, no, no better than uh, what we've achieved elsewhere without having to trade off conditions. And the, uh, the one remaining item revolves around management's desire to be able to move certain of our members in the local laws and animal management space in, out of the uh, the officers agreement which is our, our members agreement and into the, uh, the operational or outdoor agreement if you like which would result in uh, a pay cut of anywhere upwards of $15,000 a year and an increase in working hours. And have those members' jobs or roles in any way changed? Not at all. I guess we're talking about the members who provide the the front-line, walking-the-beat-type roles, making sure that the local laws and safety statutes are observed. And they've always been employed under the auspices of the Officers' Award or the Stream A Award, as it is. And somewhere along the line, management took it into their heads based on something that happened at another council that has no bearing on Redland City Council, that management should have the prerogative to move them out of uh, the officer's stream and into the lower paying operational stream, even though their duties remain the same. Was this mentioned early on in the negotiations or is this something that has come up later? How did this come about? It, uh, It did come up a bit later. Initially... As far as this particular group of our members and Redland City Council uh, staff were concerned, Council initially tabled a claim to be able to introduce a four-on-four-off revolving roster. So an officer might work from Monday through to Thursday one week, then have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday off, and then start the next cycle on the Tuesday, work four days and have the next four off. Now, 
we're obviously uh, not opposed to, to any sort of arrangement as long as as long as the money's right. But council's initial desire was for though the the weekend component of that uh, roster not to attract any penalty rates at all, which is interesting considering that our union and the union movement as a whole in this country is fighting to to keep penalty rates rather than wanting to, to trade them off for, for, for no good reason. So Council's proposal didn't go down well with us and our refusal didn't go down well with Council and it was at that point that Council's uh, bargaining representatives floated the idea that, well, we might just look at moving those workers, the, the frontline compliance guys, out of the officer stream and into the, the lower paid operational stream. Uh, as a kind of a a get-back measure like that. Now, over the course of the negotiations, our people at the table just held the line and said, well, look, you want to talk to us about an arrangement that properly rewards people for working a a four-on-four-off like that? We're happy to have those discussions, but we're not going to cop a cut in penalty rates. There should be a premium attached to working the antisocial hours. Eventually, council's bargaining team could kind of see that we weren't going anywhere. We said, well, look, council's really let the dog off the chain with regard to this desire to move our compliance guys out of stream A into stream B, the operational stream. So to prove your bona fides that you're not going to do that once the agreement's all done and dusted and you're not going to seek to subtly change and restructure so that our compliance officers suddenly find themselves doing slightly less than what would keep them in the officer stream, we want you to agree to write it into this agreement that that won't happen. So it's an enforceable undertaking and it's there for all to see and we can take it to the Commission and, and get it get it enforced if we need to. And that's really what the dispute turns on. Council raised the spectre of being able to uh, declassify these people, our members, onto the lower stream and we said, well, if you're saying you're not going to do that now, well, that's fine, but put your money where your mouth is and let's see the colour of it and lock it up in the agreement so it's it provides that security for, for the life of the, the new or the proposed agreement. In order to get an agreement certified, it, it has to be agreed to by the, the bargaining representatives, the, the unions and, and councils people. Then it goes out to a vote of all staff to ratify it. And then there's, there's sworn statements that have the force of law that then get lodged with the commission along with the agreement itself for the final check-off by, an, by a commissioner who's, who's like an industrial judge, for want of a better term. And then that becomes a legally binding, enforceable document. What was Council's response to the industrial action there on December the 12th? Well, it's been a a bit hard to gauge, really. Obviously, at this time of the year, a lot of people are probably uh, slowly winding down as they get towards the finish line. We're under no illusions that the the two-hour stoppage that our, our members in the compliance space there took was going to bring Council to its knees. It was more just a case of... Under the current legislation, our members across council have voted up uh, a series of industrial actions, including the ability to stop work, and uh, our guys in the local laws and animal management area took up that opportunity to stop work for a couple of hours and, and discuss issues, and to do it in such a way that we would be able to draw the attention of the good citizens of Redland to what was going on. So it was as much about A, our members having the opportunity to discuss their options, and B, to let people know in the broader community why things are happening the way they are. 
Could you just explain what the union's preferred outcome in all this would be? The preferred outcome and the one that would, I guess, obviate the need for any more conflict, friction, industrial action or anything, would be that council agree with our very reasonable claim that they write into the agreement that their staff and our members in the local laws and animal management space be covered by the officers' agreement for the life of the agreement, given that their roles haven't changed and given that it was council who made the threat in the first instance that they would seek to move those guys into the, the lower paid operational stream which they could do through a restructure which you're never far away from in local government anyway so because it's council who's raised the spectre of them being moved into the lower paid stream then we say that council should put that dog back on the chain and and write into the agreement that those guys will remain where they are stick together 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 you're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. Migrant farm workers, organised by the National Union of Workers, were at the Adelaide Australia Labor Party fringe during the pre-Christmas National Conference. The event, emceed by National Secretary for the National Union of Workers, Tim Kennedy, began with several workers telling Hi, their stories. My name is Jennifer. I come from Vanuatu. Uh, that's one of the small islands in the South Pacific. I'm here working at uh, Perfection Fresh. Um, I'm a picker there. I pick tomatoes. Um, we're here on a um, uh, higher high labor visa. We work here for six months, and then we go back six months, and then if the company wants us back, we're here again for another six months. So it's important to be able to have the right to return every six months to work again. So you can work here, uh, in a secure way, go back to home, invest in your own community, but be able to come back. One of the things I think that occurred is that when you came here, while you had those rights, there was insecure work and it was, and it was paid below the minimum, and that's why the union came into play. One of the things that was threatened to you about joining the union was whether you have the right to return. Did you want to talk about that? Um, yes, I, I, I'll share my experience because... I was one of the first um, first women in the first group that came to work here. Um, I was not supposed to join the union. They told us that you have no right to join the union, and they gave us they gave us a hard time. But we fought back. We we fought back. I told my colleagues, my friends, that this is the only way that we can survive here. Um, we all we have to let the union know that we have a right to work in Australia, and we have so many things that came across us uh, during our time here. But we fought, and the case uh, the case ended up almost in court. And team sitting there right there, and George came to me and said. Um, can you testify against these people? And I said, yes, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Medic came, Medic came to where we live, at the village compound where we live with the CEO, and was asking around, who is Jennifer? And <laughs> my team leaders came looking for me, and so he said that, so this is you, Jennifer. I said, yes, this is me. Um, I just want to know something. Uh, how many, how many <coughs> witnesses have you got? 
And I said, uh, 175 witness. <laughs> and he turned around and looked at the other guy that works for medic and said, um, we're not going to go for that. We're not going to go to court for that. She's got too many witnesses. And we end up having a court uh, settlement. Oh, God, yeah. And we ha I'm happy to be back here. Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel. I'm a migrant farm worker from Malaysia. Currently, I'm holding a temporary visa, and which is I have a work rights working in Australia legally. So I've been here since 2015. So the first time I work here, I work in the Robin Wells. It's an eight-hour journey from Melbourne. So I've been picking um, table grapes. So they pay me like $2 a box. So basically, like one hour, I can only do two boxes. So which is I can earn like $4 an hour. So they, they contracted, push us to work like 10 hour a day, yeah? So we can only earn like $40. So we need to pay transportation $8. So we need to pay uh, accommodation $100 a week. So basically we leave that, we, we work with the cash contractor to pay back them, you know, paying back them. So yeah, I've been witness so many exploitation happen to the farm workers in the countryside because most of the migrant workers, they don't know what happened. They don't know what, what's their rights, you know, because of their visa status. Yeah, so the, kid, the cash contractor keep bullying them, exploit them. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> within the three months, I've been witness um, my, one of my colleagues, his passport gets stolen by the cash contractor, and the cash contractor make him to pay back thousands of dollars to get his own passport back. Um, I have a friend who is sexually harassed by the cash contractor and um, my friend can't do anything because her visa status if, if she's, she thought that if she go to the police station the police could not deport her back to her country. You know? This is Stick Together, Union News, Workers' Stories. We are at the We Feed You, the Migrant Farm Workers Fighting Exploitation Session at the ALP Fringe, held during the Labor Party National Conference in Adelaide late last year. Run by the National Union of Workers, Dr Joanna Howe from the University of Adelaide spoke about her national inquiry into horticulture and how New Zealand has worked out a fairer system where the growers get the workers they need and the workers get fair pay and conditions. I've been leading a national inquiry for the last three years with a team of researchers from Sydney and Adelaide. And um, this national inquiry has been into horticulture. And there's two problems that the horticulture industry faces. One is um, an inability to access workers. So growers actually came to my research team and asked us to investigate the extent of what they believe to be labour shortages um, in Australia. And so they, they wanted to make a case for visa reform because they can't find enough workers, and in particular Australian workers. Um, that, that, so that's the first problem, that's challenges with getting workers. But there's, the second problem is around the conditions of work. Across the industry, and this is not just in Australia but worldwide, these two problems exist. The second problem is non-compliance with the law. So um, there is a real issue on Australian farms and also worldwide that workers aren't being paid according to the correct wages and they're not being treated um, according to the conditions under law. Now, there are many growers who do the right thing, but there is a norm in Australia that um, non-compliance with the law is, is, is quite endemic. Okay, so... Um, in my research, what our team did is we looked at Australia, but we also looked at around the world. And we found that 
you know, in terms of Canada, US, Sweden, the UK, all around the world, um, there is a serious problem with farm workers being exploited. There's one country where we found a much better system. It's not perfect, but it's by far the best system out there, and that is New Zealand. So um, in, early, in the early 2000s, New Zealand had a very similar situation to what we have here. So they had a whole lot of undocumented workers, workers on precarious visas without work rights in their country. They had about 50,000 in the farm industry at the start of the 2000s, which on a New Zealand scale is quite a lot. In Australia, we think we've got a, a, you know, three times that much. They also had a lot of backpackers in the country. They had, a, um, they had an agriculture visa with Southeast Asian nations, which was not regulated. And so these workers were being paid things like $2, $3 an hour. So in New Zealand, they were in a crisis and the system was broken, which I think describes the system in Australia today. Um, and uh, something that went, you know, what changed this, what disrupted it, was that industry came together with the union movement um, and with government. And so there was a tripartite solution. They, they met together and created a formal national horticulture steering group. And they realised, you know, we can't have all these different types of labour competing with each other. We can't pick backpackers versus undocumented workers versus um, workers from uh, Asian countries on this ag visa. We need to design a new system with one visa which everybody can be funneled through and the system needs to have proper conditions, it needs to be enforced and, we, and it needs to be overseen. And so they developed the RSE, the Recognised Seasonal Employer System, that was designed in consultation with unions um, and it is like our SWP. But the difference was, in New Zealand, they made some hard decisions when they introduced it. They didn't just introduce a new visa on top of all the existing visas. They really looked at the incentives around the other programs. So in New Zealand, backpackers only get an extra three months in New Zealand if they work on a farm. They don't get an extra second year and now an extra third year. Those incentives that the Australian government has created have distorted the labour market. They put a, a visa which is unregulated alongside the SWP, which is highly regulated. It doesn't take a genius to work out which visa employers going to use. They're going to use the unregulated one because it's easier to use. It's cheaper, easier to access. You don't have to pay for airfares. You don't have to provide accommodation, pastoral care. There's much less monitoring and oversight. So New Zealand did away with the unregulated options. They also dealt with the undocumented workers challenge that they were facing and they introduced the RSE. And in our interviews with New Zealand government officials, they say, you know, out of any industry in New Zealand, RSC farm workers are the best paid and the best treated. And unlike in Australia where there are 10 backpackers to one worker on the SWP, in, sorry, in New Zealand, um, those statistics are the other way around. So it's 10 RSC workers to one backpacker. So that redesign of the system has worked. And I interviewed a union official last week from New Zealand who talked to me about the fact that, you know, I said to him, so do you have those problems of exploitation of $3, $4 an hour, of $15 a day, which is, I think, what we heard from one of the women earlier. And he said, no, absolutely not. Our problem is much more uh, around increasing the minimum wage, but the minimum wage gets paid. So that's a huge shift in the landscape compared to where we are in Australia. So there, there, it is possible to design a visa system that works, but it, it does require substantial reform and the parties coming together. So I think the first thing is... As a country, and we need a government that recognises that the visa system is broken. Um, I would 
say that more broadly, but it's specifically with regards to on farms. So at the moment, we have a segmented horticultural labour market. We've got seasonal workers on the SWP that are very expensive, but then we have the two largest groups of workers, which are backpackers and undocumented workers. So the government needs to look at that. And in November, unfortunately, the government announced an extension on the backpacker visa so that it now goes for three years. The Fair Work Ombudsman's own report has said that the 88 days, and requiring backpackers to work 88 days on a farm in order to get a second year on their visa, they've said that that creates a licence for employers um, to exploit. And if the government's own agency is saying that, it, it does seem quite, um, quite ridiculous, actually, that they've gone and then extended the incentives where you tie a migration outcome to the performance of work. And that's where you get these precarious visa workers from, when they're on these visas that tie the performance of work to a migration outcome. And so then we have this second group, which is undocumented workers. And the government knows that these workers exist and they, their only policy response really so far has to say, um, we're going to try and round them up and send them home. That's sort of been the approach. But that approach isn't working, okay? We know that in the work that we've done, we've done 13 case studies in regions across Australia, and we can see in some of the regions, the numbers of undocumented workers is 80 to 90% of the farm workforce in that location. And growers will say to us, we've got no alternative other, you know, if we if we don't use that workforce, we can't find the workers that we need, um, and they don't want to go to the SWP because of some of the requirements around the length of term. So, I mean, but the thing is, growers aren't going to make the, the harder choices if the labour market is flooded with these precarious visa holders. So, the government needs to clean it up, and they need to clean it up by dealing with the challenge with undocumented workers. And there's really only two ways. One is to drastically increase the enforcement and to round up undocumented workers and send them home. That's one way. The second way is to do something like an amnesty. Um, and, you know, in our report, in our research, we talk about this as status dispute resolution, which maybe might be more um, politically possible, perhaps, than an amnesty, which... Um, you know, it, it may be challenging to sell publicly. But status dispute resolution is essentially to say to, to workers, you've got 12 months to come forward. Um, if you come forward now, you've got 12 months to stay in Australia and work, and we will provide services to try and get you onto another visa. Okay, so you either round them up and send them home and drastically increase your enforcement resources, or you develop a way that encourages to come forward, them to come forward. So that's some kind of amnesty. <laughs> At the end of that amnesty period, and there are so many countries around the world that have done amnesties, the US, Spain, Italy, this, it, it does work to do some kind of status dispute resolution. But then at the end of that, you need to have a visa system that works. So you need, a you need to get rid of the backpacker incentives or reduce them and really beef up the SWP like New Zealand did. We know that the SWP has some challenges around that right to return, but it is a better designed system and if properly enforced, um, it could work. Okay, and so that's what New Zealand did and, and, and that's sort of where we need to go. We need to get rid of the division in the labour market and that race to the bottom. Wind the clock back a few years and the, the employers would say, you know, this is just a few bad apples. It's, it's, it's a problem at the margins. Uh, but our research and increasingly the research shows that this is really endemic um, and that the supermarkets are a big part of the problem, which I know the, unit, the NW is trying to do something about. But it is costing the entire country in terms of... Um, unpaid taxes, unpaid wages, um, and, and it really, it, I would say this, that our team has found that this is, the system is broken and we, we really are urgently in need of visa reform.